So, um, welcome back from our afternoon. And uh, this is Act Three of the Great Story, and it's titled "The Other Bad Son." So, um, the where we left off was the father welcoming back um, the younger son, Johnny, if you go by my name, and um, he is extraordinarily welcomed back into the home, into the community. And the great thing about the father is that he has gone all the way out of himself to bring the back this lost sheep of his family. And that's really important because by this point in the story, um, Jesus is really talking not in the abstract about God the Father up there in heaven somewhere. He's talking about himself and what he is doing particularly with those tax collectors and other sinners that he not only hangs around with, but shares table fellowship with. Um, so he's explaining himself to the Pharisees and these other fellows who are objecting to his behavior. Um, and basically he's saying, you know, I will do anything and everything to find that lost sheep. Uh, the people that you've rejected, you who are supposed to be the leaders of Israel, you who are supposed to be the, the big shots, the great people, the people of God, the people who know God's word, you know, those people that you have sent out to faraway lands, those people that you have rejected and said, do not come home, do not come back, um, those are the ones that I will do everything to go after and bring back. So it's really, um, he's explaining in narrative terms what he's about and who he is. So act three, the other bad son. So um, big brother Jimmy is out in the fields. Um, he's out in the fields and don't think that he's working because he is the son of a reasonably wealthy person, probably quite wealthy, one of the leaders of the, one of the big shots in town. He's probably one of the, you know, this father is, is not a nobody in this village, in this community. And uh, they've got lots of property and they have seemingly a fair amount of money. And so the son is out in the fields, not with a hoe in his hand or a staff or a shepherd's staff. He's just out there in the shade supervising the shepherds and the slaves and the servants. Um, so he would never, never ever in that culture would he actually be out there working, getting dirt under his fingernails. So he's had a very privileged life. Um, it's not, he's not a poor kid by any means. Anyway, at the end of the day, uh, or whatever time of the day, he decides to head home. And as we know from the story, when he's still quite a ways off, he hears the sounds of the party and that's going on at his father's house. And this must have been very intriguing to him. What the heck is going on? Why is there all this noise and all this commotion and all this music and the drums and the flutes and the piccolos and whatever else they had at that particular culture in that particular time by way of music? And um, he can tell from the sounds that this is a very big party that's going on. And uh, so he goes and he asks some little kid, you know, what's happening. And of course, everybody in town except him knows what's happening. So the little kid 
is um, very clear in his response to what's happening and in some ways speaks um, the truth in, in a deeper way than the, kid, the brother wants to hear. Um, he says to him, your brother has come home, so your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him in peace. Now, the English translation has a little bit different wording, but the more accurate translation is the one I just read to you. So I think it says, your brother has returned and your father has slaughtered the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. Safe and sound makes it sound like uh, he's just survived an airplane crash and came out of it without a bruise. That's not what we're talking about here. That's not what Luke or Jesus is talking about. He's talking about having restored peace and right relationship with this son. He has him back in peace. Shalom. Things are right again. They're father and son again. And this, the young boy who gives this answer is very clear when he says, it's your brother. He's already, in a sense, poking the older brother's conscience and saying, this is your brother. Your father is welcomed back in the family. And that's why they killed the fatted calf, because they are at peace again. They are one again. The rift, the broken heart, the, all of that is now history. He's back home at the hearth with his father. And all is well, and all shall be well. And the reaction of the older son is very, very, very sad. He hears this. What he hears the young guy say, what he interprets it as, is your miserable and sinful brother who's not your brother anymore, that wretch that used to be your brother, that human being, which is not an even excuse for a human being, um, has returned and he's slimed his way back into your father's heart and um, they're sitting down and eating together. And this is just too much for him. So again, his responsibility as the eldest son, if there's a party at his house, his responsibility is, again, everybody in first century Middle East cultures, even to this day in small villages would know this, his responsibility as the oldest son is to go and be at the side of his father. If his father is having a party, his father is having a feast. If his father has guests in the household, he has to be there as co-host. And he has very specific responsibilities. Um, he is the wandering host of the evening. So while his father is sitting at the head table with the big shots from the town, this guy, the son, is supposed to be moving around the room, greeting and taking care of people and making sure everyone has enough food letting them know that the home is being honored by their presence uh, and that this is a joy to have them in your household. That's his job. That's, that's foundational for hospitality. 
And I've even experienced that when I've been in the Middle East, when I've been in uh, Palestine or Israel. If you're welcomed into someone's home, um, they are, they, it, it is so clear that you are a blessing to the home, that, that you are a gift to them, even though they're feeding you. And we, we don't have much of that in our culture left, in our American culture. Our sense of hospitality is so limited. It's like, you know, what's the old saying about fish and guests, you know, three days and they both start to stink. Um, and, you know, you know, if we're putting on a party, it's like, okay, this is going to last till 10 o'clock and then everybody goes home because I got to go to bed. <laughs> or, you know, uh, we're putting this on for you. And um, they don't have that, we don't have that sense anymore of this being you blessing us by coming into our home and celebrating with us. You're bringing God to us into our home. You're bringing grace into our home. And the son, the older son, is, has to be part of that. If he doesn't come in and take that role, it's a terrible insult to his father and to their guests. It's, it's a breach, not just of etiquette and protocol, it's a breach of relationship. So what does he do? He does not go in. It's a choice. He will not go in as son or brother or co-host to the rest of the community. What is he doing then? He's doing exactly what his brother did when he left home in his own way different way. The difference is Jimmy, big brother, thinks he's holy. He thinks he's righteous. He's the one who's so good and so great. And yet he's committing the very same mortal sin, mortal meaning deadly killing sin. He's killing his relationship to his father, breaking the father's heart yet again, breaking his relationship, or at least keeping the relationship dead with his own brother, who's already been welcomed back into his house, in his home, and breaking his relationship to his community. By not going in, he is walking away to a faraway land, whether he walks anywhere or not. Does that make sense? Okay. So, what does the father do then? Pops. <laughs> Once again, this extraordinary father, who wouldn't, doesn't exist in the real world <laughs> of first century, I mean, everybody would still be scratching their heads about this father. Once again, so the last thing he should do, according to the etiquette, the social norms, the culture of his times, the last thing he should do is leave his guests. That's a humiliation. If I'm hosting company and they're a grace to my house and a blessing to my house, never, ever walk out on them. You never leave them alone. You never walk out. What does he do? He walks out. Maybe he runs out, <laughs> lifts up his skirts again. I don't know. 
He walks out, he goes out, he runs out. And why does he go out? To entreat his other rotten son to come in. And um, so he once again is exercising complete self-emptying, self-sacrifice, self-abasement, maximum humiliation so that he can go collect his other lost sheep. Um, and he does this obviously because he loves this boy too, spoiled brat that he is. Um, so the next thing he does is what anybody would expect the father to do would be to say, you get your ass in there and don't talk to me anymore about it. Just get in there and do what you're supposed to do. He would shake his finger at him, poke him in the chest, slap him around, send him to his room. I don't know. You know, um, he does none of that. Um, the word that is used in Greek for his appeal to his son, the closest word we get, I suppose, in English is entreats him. It has the sense of the father not nose to nose with the boy, but side by side with him. Arm over his shoulder, maybe. Appealing to him from his heart. And um, he has this beautiful, what comes next? Um, let's see here. So first the son speaks, the older son, Jimmy. And his little speech is very subtle and has some nuance in it. The first is that he does not address his father with the words, O Father. He does not acknowledge his father as his father. Huge slap in the face to his father. You would never ever do that. First century person hearing this speech begin without the dear father, O Father, Father something would say, oh my God, how could a son do that? How could a son ever do that to his father? You would never, ever do that. But there's no father there. He just begins, look, all these years, poor me. Why, why, what is it, why, 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 you know? Um, what's the favorite son's wine? Poor me, you know. Um, and what's his case? His case is, I served you, and I never disobeyed you. The word to serve is servant. He served him not as a son, but as a paid servant. He himself acknowledges that. Secondly, He's followed the rules. He's followed the rules. There is no indication 
that he ever has loved his father or did anything for his father not required by the rules. Who does that sound like in both cases? Well, remember who Jesus is talking to. Yeah. I served you. I never disobeyed you. But I can disrespect you by not calling you father. And I can, I can um, just basically, dis, you know, if I don't want to go into your party, tough luck. No indication of any love there, of any love for his father, or even real respect. Okay. And then he goes in. Poor me, I never got even a goat from my friends. Probably did. But the second thing he says is, or the third thing he says is, but this son of yours, he does not say my brother. He does not claim the younger brother, Johnny, as his own brother. Even the boy out in the field said your brother. But he doesn't call him his brother this son of yours, who's no relationship to me. Cut him off. He swallowed up your property with prostitutes. You know what? That's calumny. He's just accused his brother of a terrible, terrible sin with no evidence. Nowhere in the story does it say that the younger son wasted the money on prostitutes, on prostitution, on harlots? If you go back and read the story, as Jesus tells it, there's nothing like that in the story. He spent the money on being a spendthrift, by throwing parties. Nothing says he was doing this with prostitutes. So this just and righteous, self-righteous, cold-hearted older brother has just accused his younger brother of really a terrible crime. I mean, everybody knows the kids made terrible mistakes, but he's just added one that's, that's not there. Uh, and that's, in their culture, is really serious. If you, if you accuse somebody of uh, prostitution, you know, that's basically sort of a capital crime, you know, it's really serious. And um, so the resentment, the anger, the, the accusatory self-righteousness is all in place. Who is Jesus describing? As we know, this older brother is Pharisees that Jesus is standing in front of as he tells this story. The father responds to him again, not nose to nose, not with a finger wagging, not with a jab at the chest, not with a slap across the face. He claims him as his son, even after all of that. My son. He gives him the dignity that he did not give his father. My son 
You are here with me always. Everything I have is yours. I've loved you and loved you and loved you with all my heart, my whole life. Loving your brother doesn't take any of my love away from you. That's not the way love works. Uh, every father and mother knows that. Because I love this son doesn't mean I love that daughter any less. Sometimes one-year-olds have a hard time with that concept when a new baby comes into the family. But adults don't. And then he gives this beautiful justification for celebration, for feasting, for rejoicing. Because your brother was dead, your brother was dead, and your brother is now alive. He was lost and had been found. Come in. Restore your relationship with him. Don't continue this self-important, poor me, um, disrespectful, unloving, cold-hearted, holier-than-thou um, thing that you've gotten yourself into. It's not too late. Come into the party. Come in to the feast. And that's where the story ends. Why does the story end there? Um, the story ends there because Jesus is waiting for the Pharisees to have the same change of heart that he's just asked the older son to have. Jesus doesn't want to do battle with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and whomever else. He doesn't want to debate them. He doesn't want to fight with them. He doesn't want... Jesus wants them to come into the feast instead of standing outside criti critiquing and criticizing and going on about Jesus having table fellowship, which is fraternity, with sinners. Come on in, the water's warm. Come in, joy and reconciliation and love are their own justification for a party. Um, you don't need to be sour. You don't need to be self-righteous. You don't need to just let go of that and come in. And he's not doing it this way. He's got his arm around the Pharisees. God, just, just loosen up, guys. You know, drop the drama. You know, just come on in. This is God. This is not only what God is like, this is God. Let God cover you with his robe of mercy and compassion and goodness and kindness. Let God kiss you. Let God put his ring on your finger and shoes on your feet and bells on your toes or whatever. Um, the kingdom of God is a party. And it's not like the party in the faraway land. It's a party of life and joy and reconciliation and fellowship.
with everybody and especially with the sinners. And that tax collector, yes, he's a sinner. It's terrible stuff he did. But look at him now. Your sin is just as bad. So come on in too. Don't let your self-righteousness stop you from knowing God when God is standing right next to you with his arm on your shoulder, putting his cloak over your shoulder. Make sense? You see how powerful it is? So Jesus is standing with these Pharisees and he's told these three stories in one. And now they have to choose. Go on in or stay out. And remember this is happening as Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. So I've given homilies on this story many times and I always, almost always point out the story doesn't end, which means, of course, we're the older brother. Come on, you know, the invitation is for us. But historically, we know that those characters Jesus is talking to when he tells this story are the ones who further on down the road and not very much further down the road are plotting his death. So it's a powerful story leading up to Holy Week. They chose not to go in. And they chose death and murder and injustice instead of love and reconciliation and communion with his father and with the sinners and with the rest of the community. Um, so the real application for us is not just, you know, accept the Lord's forgiveness, which of course it is there. But it's, I was thinking about this the other night when I was kind of working on some of this. It's like, okay, when we get to our last moment, our last breath, our last, or maybe just past our last breath, our last heartbeat, and we go to meet the Lord and all of his lovely glory. And we think we've been pretty good all of our lives. We have been, you know, we've done pretty well. Um, you know, we haven't murdered anybody, we haven't taken drugs, we haven't done all the stuff, you know, all the terrible things. Um, we've made our mistakes, but, you know, we've recovered and we got to church on Sunday most of the time and, you know, we've been pretty good people. And even if we didn't do the church thing, at least we were nice to our neighbors and you know, had them over for a beer during the Gonzaga game or something, you know. Didn't call the police when their dog bit you. <laughs> just really happened to me last week. <laughs> um, so, you know, we're pretty good people when we get to the, our encounter with the Lord. Um, and um, we make our case for ourselves. Well, I haven't been the best, but I've been pretty good. I was no Mother Teresa, but, you know, I did okay, I think, I hope. And the veil will be lifted from our eyes, and we'll see how little we did. <laughs> and how much we tolerated, how much evil we tolerated in our life and in our world. And we'll see with full force how much pain and suffering went on around us that we paid no attention to.
and we'll see all the things we could have done that we didn't do. And it'll bring us to tears as we realize we weren't that good after all. And the father, the shepherd, the woman with her purse, um, God, Jesus, will cover us with his blanket, with his robe, and say, come on in. The party's fine. The water's warm. The wine is fresh. And uh, let's be one again. You're my son, you're my daughter, and you always will be. That's the way I think it'll end. I'm done. <laughs> I'm done. My work is done here. <laughs> um, any questions or thoughts or reflections? You'd have, you now have about an, about an hour for personal prayer, Adoration, reconciliation. If you want to go home early, you can go home early. No, one will, no one's watching. No one's watching the parking lot. Um, but any, before we go, any thoughts from your side? Wow. Yes. What's the book that you referenced? Yes. The book I referenced, and I owe all of the, almost all of this to, to Kenneth, Kenneth E. Bailey. B-A-I-L-E-Y, and it's called The Cross and the Prodigal. And it is IVP Books. I've never heard of that. Um, it's here. InterVarsity Press, you're right, yes. And it's 2000, this edition is 2005. It's certainly available on Amazon. I know that this little bookstore back here would order it for you if you want. Um, the first part is the stuff I gave you. The second part, he prepares, he writes a, a play, basically, a drama, based on his interpretation of the story. Um, so it, it, it's kind of interesting, too. He was a wonderful man. I, I didn't know him well, but he was, um, he was at Tantour, which is a ecumenical, mostly Catholic, um, center right between Jerusalem and Bethlehem. It really sits right on the line. Uh, when I was there, the big wall hadn't been put up yet, so we could go out the front door to Jerusalem and out the back door to Bethlehem. We preferred the back door to Bethlehem because they had really good lamb there. <laughs> um, and, um, but Kenneth Bailey and his wife both worked at Tentur, and he, did, he mostly was doing research. And, um, he dedicated his life to <coughs> this kind of study of visiting villages that held on to the customs and traditions and culture of the first century and, and trying out these stories on them and listening to how they responded, as well as researching a lot of Arab, Coptic, Syriac texts that mostly have been unpaid attention to, translations of these stories, the early translations in those, those ancient languages that have been, you know, Greek and Hebrew is what most scholars work in, but he worked in those other languages as well. So he really had a deep, I mean, he's, whatever it was, 50 years of this. He died just not too many years ago. Um, a great loss, really, because he was doing wonderful work. Um, but it's a, it's a, it's, it's, it seems so logical that you would want to understand Jesus and his stories 
um, according to the culture in which they were spoken rather than interpreting them from our culture. Um, this it seems normal, but it hasn't been normal. <laughs> hasn't been the norm. But you can see the richness of it. Yeah. Oh, with the Roman They would not have lived in the Roman culture. Okay. No, there was a very, they, they, there was water and oil. So the Romans controlled the country and they were developing their big cities. Uh, even one near where Jesus grew up, Tiberias, along the, on the, along the lake, which is still there. Um, but the good Jews uh, would have had as little to do with the Romans as possible. Uh, because it was a conquering culture, they were the enemy, they were pagans, um, and uh, you, you would go and build their houses for them, but you would not share fellowship with them. They, had their, they kept their cultures very apart from the Roman culture. That being said, obviously language and influence, I mean some of it's going to seep in, you can't help but do that. Um, but you, people were, some people were more fervent, I suppose, than others. You know, like some of Jesus' own followers were, were uh, his own disciples were so anti-Roman that they were really, you know, kind of the violent type, you know, overthrow the Romans by the sword. Um, but no, they, it probably wouldn't have been too much of that culture seeping in. Some, maybe in some places, but... So it's a big question, was Jesus, did Jesus have to go work building Roman villas? Is that how he made his living? Some people say he would have had to. If he was a carpenter, he would have had to have done that, to have survived, to make money. Others say he would probably never have done that. Who knows? Did Jesus have long hair or short hair? No, it's a big question. Because if he had short hair, then it means he had adapted to the Roman culture. If he had long hair, he would have been making a statement against the Roman culture. We don't know. <laughs> Presumably, he did not wear a Roman haircut. He didn't look like Julius Caesar. You know, bangs. Um, beards, the same kind of question. And scholars bat that stuff around. Yeah. But very good question. What, what was the Roman role in all of this? Who knows? Jesus spoke in Aramaic, so by the time, so Jesus' native language was Aramaic, although he certainly knew Hebrew, because he could read the scriptures, probably knew a fair amount of Greek, because he was living, Greek was in the air, would have need that, needed that for economic and social reasons. Latin, probably not very much, if any, maybe a few words, who knows. Uh, so we're getting the story spoken in Aramaic, a form of Hebrew, a dialect of Hebrew, translated into Greek by Luke, translated again into Latin by Jeremiah, Jeremy, Jeremiah, is that right, Jeremiah? Um, no, um, Jerome, Jerome, sorry. Um, and then translated again into English by whomever, poorly probably, and then retranslated in English from the original Greek, 
by more recent scholars, like New American Bible and RSV and stuff. Um, but nobody, these, these translations we have don't go back to the Aramaic, unless they, I mean, they, I mean, they, they, they re make references to the Aramaic if they can, but um, if you go to some of the Christian villages in Palestine, um, you can hear the prayers in Aramaic, including the Lord's Prayer, in, in Jesus' own language. They've preserved that. And they're dying, sadly. The Christian communities in, in the Holy Land are being forced out um, on both sides. They're being pushed from both sides. And they're getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. Um, but that's, those are some of the communities that Bailey went to visit because they preserve the culture, ancient culture. Okay, well, another question, very good question. Yeah, Doreen. Um, you, you mentioned in your homily about Abraham, and was he a Bedouin? <laughs> oh, Bed Bedouins wouldn't have existed. He was like a Bedouin. Okay, I was going to say, <laughs> seeing them. But Bedouins, if, again, if you go to the Holy Land, you'll see Bedouin encampments. Um, mm -hmm. Pat, you were there, some of the others. Yeah. You know, the big, big black tents mm -hmm. spread out, and they just pick them up and move them. Wherever, wherever the sheep lead you, and you're in a desert land, so you take the sheep where there's grass. If there's a little bit of dew in the morning, that's where the little bit of little bit of grass might grow. So that's where you take your sheep and you follow them. You don't make them live where you live. <laughs> so he was he was a wandering Aramean. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Yes. I'm thinking Kat. about the application to today in today's church. Jesus giving this message to the Pharisees. And if we look at our own church today and sometimes the rules and regulations and you should do it this way or I'm just, I don't know, how, how do we translate this? I mean, what's, is this message supersede all of those? Should I turn off my recording now? <laughs> 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 I, 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 